Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 145 The Survival of American Buddhism. This week, we're joined by Shambhala Acharya and Naropa University professor Judith Simmer Brown to explore the four primary areas of focus which are crucial for the long-term survival of American Buddhism. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. I'm joined today by a guest that we've had on the show before, Dr. Judith Simmer-Brown. Judith, thank you so much for taking the time again to join us and uh, speak with us about topics that are close to your heart and close to ours as well. Thanks so much, Vince. I'm delighted to be back. Yeah. And for those of you who haven't heard our past interview with Judith, we talked about the scholar practitioner and we talked about textual study. We talked about lots of cool stuff. So go check that out. And also, a um, little background, Judith is an Acharya in the Shambhala tradition, and she's also a religious studies professor at Naropa University, which is where we met originally. I took one of her classes there. So she has a, a very broad and deep knowledge of the Buddhist tradition and of education. So it's a neat combination. Thank you. Um, so one thing I thought would be cool to talk about is I went to see a keynote that you gave recently at a conference on Buddhism and leadership. It was interesting. Your talk was a response to a talk that you did 11 years ago. Yes, that's right. So 11 years ago, I was a keynote speaker at a Buddhism in America conference. And in that talk 11 years ago, I laid out what I thought were four things that Buddhism really needed to pay attention to in order to survive in an American context. And I raised these questions of these four areas, but I didn't address them in that keynote address. So when I was asked to give a keynote in this Buddhism in America conference, I was asked to address the four things that I talked about 11 years ago, and it amazed me that anybody would even remember. But the organizers of the conference had heard my keynote lecture online, and they asked me if I would please address this particular topic. So I was delighted. The four questions are based on a lecture that I heard when I was a graduate student at Columbia University in the early 70s actually late 60s, and it was basically a criterion that's used for trying to figure out if Buddhism is going to last more than a single generation in a new culture. The lecture was really addressing Buddhism transplanted from India to China and said that if in a single generation these particular areas are not established, then Buddhism is not likely to last. And then I, over the years, as an American Buddhist, have thought about these four areas a lot. And in my teaching at Naropa, every now and then I'll get these out and dust them off. And it was really an interesting thing that in Naropa's early history, I gave a lecture in a class about these four areas. And unbeknownst to me, a member of the class was a multimillionaire. And she said that lecture became the foundation stone for her about how to contribute to Buddhism in America to ensure its survival. Wow. And it's amazing. You know, I know this woman to this day, she systematically picked these four things to support financially and incredibly generously. And she 
made a huge difference. And this was back in the early 80s. She put strategic money in to various things. So the four areas, let me just go over them, and then we can just, you can take it where you'd like to take it. Perfect. To reframe it, that if Buddhism does not develop infrastructure in four ways, it will not survive as a real ongoing tradition beyond a generation or beyond a hundred years. The four areas are the translation of the key and foundational texts of Buddhism into the language of the new country, so in, in this case, English, the development of a monastic tradition with American lineage holders in that tradition who carry on the monastic ordination and education and training, the training and appointment of regents or dharma uh, holders, transmission holders, in the new country so that the tradition can be carried on in the new country, in this case, uh, the United States or North America. And the fourth is... Uh, Looking at my notes here, I recall royal it was patronage. Patronage, yeah. yes. And this is the one I particularly talked about in this lecture you heard, that without patronage based in the new country, Buddhism would be reliant on patronage from the country from which it came. So, of course, in Asia, it was always royal patronage. And royal patronage was the key to the success of Buddhism in Asia. But in this country, without royal patronage, some kind of base of financial support and a kind of ongoing endowment to make sure that Buddhism can survive in this new culture. So these four are the key things that I heard in a lecture, I think it probably 1969 or 1970 at Columbia University, and it's stuck in my mind all these years as four very important things for us as American Buddhists to think about have we really put attention into the right things? We can have lots and lots of very inspiring teachers and people doing meditation practice, but when our teachers die or when we get distracted, you know, poof, it's gone. Do we have a real infrastructure for Buddhism to continue as a tradition established in North America, practiced by North Americans? So those are the four things that I raised 11 years ago, and these are the things that I addressed in the keynote. Nice, nice. And it sounds like these four almost have to come together. Like you could have one or two without the others and it wouldn't, somehow the tradition might not take hold as a result. I think that's true. And I think also that these four criteria have to be adapted a little bit for an American context because some things are a little bit different. And the question is, do we take these four criteria literally or do we adapt them in some way? And so in my keynote, I thought about how we might adapt them or think about these infrastructure themes without necessarily, for instance, sticking with royal patronage because we don't have a monarchy in this country. So, And one of the things that you got into, which I found really interesting, I'd love to kind of go back over that with you, is you looked at each of these areas and how you've seen them, how we're doing basically yes. in the last 11 years. And you yes. gave a kind of a little overview of that. And I thought that would be really relevant for Buddhist geeks. Yes. Well, for instance, one thing is with the translation of texts, 11 years ago, we had a long way to go on uh, translation of Buddhist texts. Although in the Pali tradition, there's all been a lot translated. The Chinese canon has come along well, but the Tibetan tradition has been way behind for a long time. In the last 11 years, a lot has happened in translation, and there is an increasing number of translations that are available 
there's a lot more available now in English than there was 11 years ago. There are some big areas that need to be thought about. And uh, what I talked about in my lecture is that still only a small percentage of the Tibetan canon has been translated. The Chinese canon is translated increasingly, but still there's huge portions of it that have not been translated into English. And I think one of the key elements is that so far, a lot of the translation projects are done by individual scholars working in isolation. And so there is no equivalency or ground of agreed-upon translation of terms. So when you move from one translation to the next one, you have to learn from their glossary exactly how they translate, you know, Tibetan or Sanskrit or Pali or Chinese terms or Japanese terms. And it means you have to learn each translator's system separately. So one of the things that has been very encouraging to me is an increasing collaboration among translators. In the Chinese tradition, there there are more Chinese translation committees taking place. In the Japanese tradition, and I know the Tibetan tradition the best, there have been some translators' conferences in the last year and a half that have meant that translators are now trying to say it's not enough for us to work alone. We have to get together. We have to create translation committees We need to provide financial support for translators. They're even developing health insurance policies for translators and retirement funds for translators to ensure the ongoing work. And I think that American Buddhism is going to go through in the next 10 years a real generation change from the initial group of translators. And of course, it's true in all the other areas that I'll talk about as well, that a whole group of translators are going to be dying off. And they need to pass their experience and their support on to the next generation and be training new generations of translators. And I do think that at least some of the translators recognize this. And this is something that very, very much needs our attention. We need to financially support translation projects. We need to really appreciate and use the translations that they make We need to find common agreement about translations of terms so we're not starting over with every book we read. So that's a huge improvement, but there's still much more to be done in the area of translation. And I think one other thing that I would say is in the area of Tibetan translation, which is what I know the best, the thing that is most dismaying to me is in the last seven or eight years, there have been fantastic translations that have come out a whole series on German control Lodre Thai's translations, a whole seven or eight books, a whole series of Sadra Foundation translations. There's some marvelous things coming out, but who's reading them? So one of the things that concerns me is that the translation aspect really fits in with education aspect. So if I can go on and talk about monasticism yeah, please, please. a little bit, The reason why monasticism was so important in Asia was because of Buddhist education. And one of the questions is, will we develop the kind of monastic structure in America that existed in Asia? We just aren't sure. And some people say that we will not develop that. I'd like to come back to that because I do think we need a strong monastic system, although maybe it will play a different role here than it played in Asia. But even if we don't have strong, large well-supported monasteries, we do need Buddhist education. We need people to learn the sources of a tradition. And we need Dharma teachers to be trained, not just making things up as pop psychology or whatever sells or whatever the market will bear, but 
a deeply trained, educated teacher who can share the depth and wealth of the tradition. And so all these wonderful translations that are being done, if people don't read them or study them or learn from them and build one text on another in a systematic way and understand what they're doing, the tradition's going to get watered down more and more and more as our Asian teachers pass away or no longer stay around and all of that. So that's a huge issue. And then you'd mentioned in your talk that these three areas that monasteries usually provided refuge for. Yes. And you mentioned already study. Yes. Um, but that you kind of reinterpreted monasticism, that it might look differently. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Since, sure, I'd be happy yeah, to. Yeah. One thing is having places of intensive practice where people can go and really settle into the practice and do long-term practice situations, even if it's on retreat. I think one of the things that concerns me is in American Buddhism increasingly, there are more people practicing, but are they actually going on retreat? Are they engaging in long-term practice? Are they deepening in their practice over a long period of time? Monasteries provided that in Asia. And if we don't have places like practice centers or whatever that really hold the long-term practice, then that's a difficulty. So the three things I mentioned were practice and then, of course, mentoring. Having a mentor who can really train in ritual and in all of the protocols and aspects of Buddhist practice That's very, very important. So monasteries held that as well, a kind of teacher-student relationship or where you could have someone who could teach you all the ritual arts of musical instruments or the depths of shamatha vipassana practice or whatever. Then, of course, education in text. So monasteries provided that kind of support in Asia. And if we don't have monasteries, and that is a separate discussion I would really like to talk about before we finish. Sure. Even if we don't have a monastic tradition, we have to have a place with deep, sustained practice, mentorship for really learning the depths of practice, and then a very important tradition of Buddhist study, study of Buddhist texts. Gotcha. And it seems like, in some ways, Western meditation centers are almost holding most of those things, except Sometimes they're just practice and mentorship and not the study. That's right. Mm. That's right. So there's some places that emphasize study more. Some emphasize practice more. Some of the places that have practice don't necessarily have long-term mentorship. They don't necessarily have resident teachers who might work with people over years. You might go for a retreat of 30 days, but then you wouldn't see that person for another four years or whatever. And I think the kind of mentorship that monasteries provided in Asia was a long-term relationship with a lot of depth and a lot of training that I'm not sure we can get in weekend programs and, you know, week-long retreats or 30-day programs. You know, the way that you bring the Dharma into your daily life in that kind of enduring way, I think that's a real question. How are we going to sustain that? Yeah, you mentioned in your talk that we, we need that because we can't see our own blind spots. We can't see our own blind spots. That's yeah. right. And of course, I mean, we've had incredibly generous Asian teachers who have done a lot for us, and they have lots and lots of students, and they are not living forever. I've lost a few of my teachers, and I'll lose more of them, and of course, I'll die myself. So how are we going to pass all of this on? How can I pass on what I've been trained in, what I've really been so fortunate to learn, how can I pass that on to others if I don't have a setting and an ongoing 
relationship with students to right. pass that on. Yeah, it seems like in the case of going for 30 days, for instance, and seeing a teacher, there'd be some a lot of value there, but then there wouldn't be an ongoing way in which they would see my practice in the context of life, or exactly. I wouldn't be able to kind of check in in these other areas. It'd just be like the intensive retreat mode or something. Like I that. love leading 30-day retreats, and I've been doing it a lot, but I have such close relationship for those 30 days, but then... Where are those people after that time? When do I get to work with them again? When do we have some kind of ongoing relationship? And email and phone, they just don't do it. So we, we need to find some way to foster that kind of ongoing mentorship in our training centers. So if it's not monasteries, it's got to be someplace that carries that peace. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of ties in with the other area of Dharma errors. Uh, yes, it does. How are we doing on that? What's, what's changed in the last 11 years? Well, Dharma errors, it's a hot topic, and the Zen tradition in America has done a lot for passing the Dharma error on to American uh, Zen teachers. And we do have a lot of Zen Roshis now who are Western-trained. They had Asian teachers, and now they're Roshis. If you take the White Plum, for example, it's a whole group of American Roshis. But what's very interesting to me is that they have not been accepted by the Soto hierarchy in Japan. So it's fantastic that they've been empowered and that they're going on, but have they cut their ties with their Asian roots? And at least in the way that I've been trained in the Tibetan tradition, keeping the channel of blessings open is one of the very, very important things when you've received Dharma transmission, to keep that kind of channel of blessings open so that your own teaching and the integrity of your teaching will survive in some kind of way. So as a, an Acharya in the Shambhala tradition, one of the challenges always is, am I keeping a sense of connection and loyalty and devotion for the roots that I've come from, but also am I able to adapt the teachings to this new environment that this is not Tibet? The, what's required here is different than Tibet. Mm-hmm. So I think that the balance between keeping the traditions but adapting them in a way that actually works is something that everyone who's a Dharma heir needs to think about. I know the Tibetan tradition has been the most nervous about Dharma heirs. They have a very good reason to be nervous because they have lost their country. The teachers who I study with are all in diaspora. They do not have you know, their homeland. So they've really had to set up in a different situation, and they're extremely nervous about the survival of their traditions in diaspora situation. They don't know what's going to be happening another 50 years or less. And when His Holiness the Dalai Lama goes, and when the older elders of the tradition pass, then what about the integrity of those traditions? So I think they're very nervous about passing this on to Westerners for fear that we do not have the same kind of investment in the survival of their traditions. Mm. So I can really understand the caution that Tibetan teachers have. I think, however, if the Dharma is to survive in the West, there has to be Western Dharma heirs, and we cannot always rely on Tibetans. On the other hand, we as Americans, if somebody is Tibetan and a teacher in robes, we flock there, and we're less likely to flock to the American teachers because it feels more authentic or mm. you know, it's a little more exotic or whatever. Mm. So maybe we are mixed in our desire for Western Dharma heirs. I don't know. 
all of these things are things that I think we need to be talking about in our Western Dharma communities and asking ourselves what kind of investment we're making in our own future, the future of our own tradition. So do we want Western Dharma heirs or not? And what is the alternative? Are we all to become little Tibetans or little Japanese or a little Thai or Sri Lankan Buddhists, you know, eating their food and wearing their clothing? Or are we going to be actually making an American Buddhism out of this that still has the openness and connection to the channel of blessings in Asia? That's a big question. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.